Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Major news. White Wine Question Time is going live. And not just any old where, only in London's West End. I cannot believe it. We have some incredible guests lined up for you. So, Saturday the 18th of September at the Leicester Square Theatre with Craig Revel Horwood. Yeah, just as you can smell the sequence of Strictly and the whiff of spray tan as it comes back to our screens, Craig will be in conversation with us. Come and see us. Then on the 9th of October, I can't believe they've all agreed to do this, but we're reuniting the cast of Grange Hill. So I've got Todd Carty, Tucker, Lee McDonald, Samo, and Alison Valentine, who played Faye, with a few other guests to be announced closer to the time. And then, finally, on the 13th of November, it's the ultimate girls' night out. We're reuniting the cast of Dunbreeding. So, Tracy ann Oberman, Julie Graham, Tamsin Outhwaite, Denise Welsh and Alison Newman will be joining us live on stage. Tickets are on sale now. They're available from the Live Nation website or wherever you get your tickets. Come and see us. Hello and welcome to White Wine Question Time, the podcast that asks its guests three thought-provoking questions over three glasses of wine. And my guest this week is a truly magnificent actress who first stole our hearts over 20 years ago as little Mo in EastEnders and has kept it captive ever since 2014 as Kathy Keating in detective drama Grantchester opposite Robson Green. She's been treading the boards, however, since the tender age of 10, where she started out in Annie. And by the time she'd hit her teens, had already appeared alongside stalwarts like Sheila Hancock, Peter Sellers and Michael Crawford. After graduating from the Central School of Speech and Drama, she was cast at the Royal Court opposite Ray Winstone and went on to work with Mike Lee before auditioning alongside hundreds of others at an actor's workshop for EastEnders who were looking to cast the Slaters, a new female-led family on the square. Her heartbreaking portrayal of domestic abuse as the survivor Little Mo deservedly won a countless awards and saw her career skyrocket with her going on to dazzle in the West End, most recently in Sweeney Todd, and on screen in Call the Midwife, moving on, The Mallorca Files, Torchwood, and for the last seven years in Grantchester. Married to Darren, a plumber who she first dated when they were at school in their teens, they've got two children, Blossom and Elwood, and she's spoken openly about how the family has dealt with Elwood's Asperger's and dyspraxia diagnosis. In order to support him and his needs, she took a considered break from acting and for seven years only took one job a year in order to care and support him. Now she's back in production on the seventh season, seven of Grantchester, and I cannot wait to catch up with her. So let's dial up Casey Ainsworth. How are you? Hi, I'm very good. You know what? That is the most accurate intro I have ever heard and listened to. Really, just brilliant because it is exactly all of the things. It's, it encapsulates everything. Um, normally, you know, the le- the, there's so much that's left out, but you've done the lot. Thanks, babe. But what a life well lived. And, you know, I didn't realise that you had started out alongside, I mean, some seriously superb actors before you'd probably even hit puberty. <laughs> yes, yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. It was it was all by mistake, really. I went for an open audition, which was um, a bit of fun. And so, and I'd kind of done 
I'd, you know, I'd obviously done stuff at school and I'd really enjoyed it and all of that. My mum said, oh, let's go to that before we see your dad. I literally queued up, went in, you had to sing happy birthday. Um, and then the musical director said, where's your song? And I was like, mm, well, I haven't really got a song um, because I was just, you know, a regular person and I and I wasn't from stage school or anything and um and he said do you know any songs I said I know what's the name of the game by ABBA because it was in the charts <laughs> and he said I know that and so we sang it together and then I went on from there and we got a recall and my mum was like oh what do we do now so it was a complete accident well everything that's happened since has been certainly not by accident I mean you don't end up where you are with the kind of roles that you've had I mean I can't believe like the Grantchester is seven seasons in now and it airs in the states as well yeah and seven years it still feels like a new show to me is that is that weird well yeah and I think it's because um it, it's grown all of the characters within it have grown mm. I mean I think the reason why people like it is because you get the story as a beginning middle and end which is very satisfying when you watch something you get a, you know we all love a campfire story so a bit of a detective story that that rounds up in one episode is nice but then you also get with this you get all the other characters outside of that and our stories filter all the way through so it's a lovely kind of undercurrent of people that you recognize um and so I think that's what's really nice about it. I know in lockdown, you were home a bit and then at work a bit. And you were amongst the first productions in the industry back doing Grantchester, weren't you? How was it shooting in? Because it's almost hard to remember that first round of, of lockdown and how little we knew and how frightened everyone was. Yeah, and we were frightened. There was there was huge amounts of protocols that we had to go through in order to even get on set. Um, and it was a very strange situation because you're in a mixture between feeling very, very privileged to be able to be doing your job when lots of people in this industry mm. were, you know, they were, their lives, had, you know, halted. They've got no chance for doing any any jobs that they had. You know, anybody in the West End was, mm. you know, it was just awful. And you were hearing horror stories all the time. So I felt very lucky. So it was a mixture between feeling really lucky that I was doing this drama and also the fear of, of I don't want to get COVID and also the fear of I don't want to get COVID and bring it into the set from my house because I had, you know, yeah, kids at yeah, school yeah. and all of that. And obviously... That did happen. I did get COVID, but I didn't take it to set because our protocols was, were watertight. So they, I, they knew that I'd got, I, I was positive before I had any symptoms. And in fact, I didn't get any symptoms at all. I was a complete super spreader. Um, so I had no, I had no, I was asymptomatic and pretty much my son was too. He said he felt tired one day, but that's kids. Um, and you know, that was, that was it. Um, and my, but my daughter, my daughter got it as well. Um, but we were all good. We were all fine with it. it. Wasn't you know anything really, really bad for us. So you know, I I take my lucky stars on all of that. I was so fascinated by your backstory and how much you've done before we even got to know you twenty odd years ago. I mean, can you believe it was twenty odd years ago that EastEnders cast the Slaters? Um, so my first question to you is is about those people or those moments that changed everything for you. And I wondered if you could identify one event or a person or a period in your life that was seminal in changing everything for you. Yeah, I've got a couple in terms of work. So the first one was my first musical director um, and he was called John Owen Edwards. And he was a very, very beautiful man. And he was the um, musical director for uh, Annie. And um, 
I wasn't a stage school kid. I was a normal kid from a from a regular JMI in North London, and um, and he really allowed me to show myself because I think he thought he thought that. I'd got something that was right for the show. So when I did Annie in in the 70s, they really wanted very natural people. They didn't necessarily want people who had had training and were a bit more um, show busy, you know, a bit yeah, more jazz, jazz handsy, hands. which which yeah. is which is right for some shows. But for this show, they wanted they wanted people who who kind of could be could be very natural. Um, and I think he saw that and. Um, I wasn't prepared when I went in for my audition at all um, because I'd just done it in the half-term um, break because the Victoria Palace was around the corner from my dad's office. And so we'd literally gone up on spec, so I had no song, no anything. And he was amazing because he... He, he just said to me, he, we riffed it. He said to everyone else, everyone else before me had got like proper songs. There were girls there in chiffon dresses singing, you know, mama, he's making eyes at me. All of that. It was literally <laughs> everything. And I was like, I was completely wide eyed. I'd never seen anything like this before. And I thought it was amazing and wonderful. Um, but he said, but he said to me, you know, and he didn't need to do this. He didn't need to give me this time. But he said to me, what songs do you know? And I said, well, I know, I know, um, uh, um, what's the name of the game by ABBA? And he said, yeah, I know that. He said, come on, let's sing that. And he, the the combination of his natural um, charm and also his ability to work with children and bring out and make them feel comfortable enough to be able to say, um, "Oh, I know this song," and to be able to just riff it, um, which is what he what he did. Um, that changed the course of my whole entire life because then I started yeah. working. So he was really the seminal person um, who 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 said, "You know, there's something here." And I'd like to see that and develop that. Um, so he was the first one. Um, and the second one was a guy at drama school um, who I went in, we, at drama school at the end of the year, you have somebody who, um, you, you, you have to do a showcase. Yeah, for agents and things, is that right? You can get agent representation and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, so it's, and it's a massive moment at the end of your studies. And you were at a very prolific stage school, weren't you? I mean, it, when I say prolific, it, it's turned out a lot of the great thespians that we celebrate to this day. Royal Central School of Speech. There's lots and lots of people who've been through those doors, lots of people that you know, um, and, you know, Oscar winners and whatever, and also lots of writers, directors, everybody. Anyway, um, so I was doing my final showcase and I went up to him and uh, we had to discuss what we were doing. And I, and I said to him in my, you know, fantastic London speak, um, which has kind of gone quite a lot, but um, I said to him, you know, I want to do, um, I think I'm going to do some Noel Coward because, you know, I look like Patricia Hodge and, um, and she, you know... <laughs> You do a bit. I do, I do. I really do. I ended up playing her niece in something. Um, and, um, and she said to me, God, yeah, you do. You do look like me. Um, anyway, uh, she said, um, you know, I said, I said to him, oh, I'll, you know, I'm going to do an old cow. She does loads of an old cow. And obviously she does really popular and all that. And he, he listened to me go on about this spiel. And then he just, he just leant in and just went, you're not the second coming of Patricia Hodge. You're the... <laughs> Which I thought was great. He said, you're the first you. He said, why don't you do you? You is great. And I, and I was like, oh. oh, okay. So I went off and I found a speech that I really liked. Um, and, and it was a really brilliant speech. I loved it. Um, it was all the things that you shouldn't do. An accent, um, uh, a different uh, a male character, all the things that they said, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Um, but I did it. And then I remember going in the next morning and seeing all these tickets on my on my photograph. So what they used to do was they'd, you'd, uh, in the old days before, you know, 
mobile phones or whatever, they'd phone the school and say, leave a message. And then the message would get pinned onto your photograph. I mean, it's quite brutal because if you were one of the people who didn't have anything pinned onto your photograph, that's hard. That's all there for all to see. Yeah, that's that's quite public. There for everybody to see. And I had all oh. these pins and I was like, I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't know. I didn't think this would happen. You know, my 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 greatest wish when I was leaving was to work at the Royal Court, work at work with Mike Lee and then but the, actually just to work. I didn't really, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't care what it was. I just wanted to work. I wanted to get out there and do some work and get my equity card because you had to have one then and do yeah, all of yeah. that. And that's all. I, and, and suddenly I looked at this thing and I thought, I've got to go and speak to these people. How, how do I choose between these people? What do I, and I, I didn't really know anything. So yeah. it was him really saying that, that gave me the confidence to then just go out and find a piece of my own. Yeah, and it, I mean, it sounds like these two guys, uh, 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 kind of, sort of, fifteen years apart, almost. Would it be fifteen, ten years apart? Both tapped your shoulder and said, "Just be you." You know, don't. I don't want all the jazz hands. I want you as Annie. And then, at, you know, at drama school, just don't do Patricia. Do you? And self belief is something that's so hard to instill in ourselves. I think sometimes we absolutely rely on people to come along at the right point and pour it into our ears so that it sticks in our brains and we remember to believe in ourselves. Yeah, but I, I also think that there, it's a really old fashioned kind of Hollywood idea that someone with a you know a, a, a magic wand comes down and says it's you, you're the one. Um, and actually, all the stuff you do leads to that. Mm. All of the stuff that I that I suppose I did, which was, you know, even I mean, obviously the first one was a was a kind of like flute, more fluky thing. But all of the work that I'd done at drama school, all of the you know the soul searching, the pieces, the trying stuff, the failing, all of that, it all leads to it all leads to that. And I say to people all the time, you know, about auditions and you know not getting an audition and not getting a callback. I always say that that's not the point. The point, yes, obviously you do want to get the job, but it's it's what you you never know where that goes. You never yeah. know where that little bit of 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 you know film goes. Um, that somebody says, oh oh that girl, yeah, she's not right for this, but she's right for that. Nothing is ever wasted. No work that you do, no vocal exercises that you do, no learning to dance, no learning a Czechoslovakian accent for something that you don't get <laughs> ever goes to waste because one day it will be there and you will use it and you'll go, thank goodness I did that. Thank goodness I did. Yeah. I, I invested in myself. So it's never lost. Nothing is ever it's lost. It's like human compost, isn't it? it? It will regenerate into something else and, so, and sort of manifest itself in different ways. And you, you you talked there about you had that, this ambition, this burning ambition to walk at, work at the Royal Court, and you did. That was was that your first job out of drama school? It wasn't. It wasn't my first. So, I, so I got a job straight out of drama school. I did rep, um, and I, so I did two plays of Shakespeare in a musical. So that was great. So I had my card, um, and then then it was I auditioned for Royal Court, and I auditioned for something called Ashes and Sand, uh, which was a brilliant piece, and I didn't get it. Um, and, oh. I, and I'd gone for a couple of auditions and I was really gutted I didn't get it. Um, amazing people were in it. Um, um, Samantha Morton, um, Susan Lynch. I mean, it was just a brilliant piece about four girls. Um, and I was absolutely gutted. And I remember thinking, oh, this is awful. And my agent at the time, Cassie, she was brilliant. She just said to me, you know, this will pay dividends. It's fine. Something will happen. And then the very next play they were doing was Joe Pennell's Pale Horse um, with Ray. Ray Winston, a very young Ray Winston then. I mean, we're talking, this is the 80s, yeah? 
No, 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 no. This is the 90s. So this is just before he did Neil by Mouth. Ah. So he'd done some voices, which was a Joe Pennell play. Um, and he'd, that had been very successful. And this is now Joe's second play. And he wanted, obviously, Ray right. to be in it because it was so good. Um, and it was, it was amazing for me because I was the only girl in it. Um, and I absolutely loved it. I had an amazing experience, met wonderful people who I still know today. Um, and it, it, again, it, that then what happened was, was that there was that whole kind of Brit pop, um, Manchester, very, there was a kind of real working class scene. And I then went on to do lots of plays, which I think then put me in front of Mike Lee. And that's when I started working with him or did, did Topsy, did one film with him, did Topsy Turvy. Um, so by the time I got to 98 and I'd left drama school in the early 90s, by the time I got to 1998, I'd done the three things that I'd wanted to do. And I was wow. kind of like, like, oh, wow. So when EastEnders kind of arrived, I'd always said I didn't want to do it because I'd always gone, oh, you know, it's just a bit obvious. You know, you're a London girl. Do you, you know, is this, yeah. is this, is this where is this is the only trajectory that we have? You know, posh, yeah. posh people can play us, but we're not allowed to play them. You know, where what's going on? It was that kind of thing. I, I mm. had a which was very much the case at the time, wasn't it? Yeah, there was no opportunities for people from my background, particularly other than that. And it was a, it was like, mm. but then when I went along to the uh, to the to the workshop for it, you know, the talent was astounded by the people. Um, you know, there was over a hundred of us, and then we got whittled down to. 30 and then there was about in the end there was about 12 of us and it kind of like you know went backwards and forwards with various different people uh, Zoe was a boy first of all and then mum was still alive and then mum was dead and it was kind of it was lots of different things that went on and it was a good three-month process of finding us really um, but by the time I got to close to the end of it I really wanted it by then because I could see I could see how brilliant it was going to be well, you could see the meat on the bones of that family, couldn't you? And, and there are those characters and those storylines that really capture a, a nation. And yours did. And you were so understated and perfectly pitched in, in that role as Little Mo that you broke, you broke our hearts, you know, as hers was breaking. Well, it's a, it's, it's a thing, isn't it? You know, a lot of people don't realise how much work goes into, obviously, doing the soap. And some people are very similar to their characters and some people are very different it just it mm. just depends it's all a um you know it's all about um your process and um and they always used to take the mickey out of me because i had a character book i had loads of different things that i would do um to that that i would think about with her i put i used to use laban technique for um s certain scenes um and i would do what's the laban technique so so what that is is it, it it's um you, you have these uh, different sets of emotions and they can be um, that they, they can be light and dark they can be consistent and they can be heavy or they can be consistent or fast or they can be heavy or light so if you think about somebody who's quite ethereal they're probably quite light aren't they yeah, um, yeah. and obviously with little Mal, I did that one of one of the emotions that I used to use is ringing and so and she would often be, so, so if you think about ringing, it's constant, it's heavy, and it's dark. Because if you're if you're ringing your hands, it's it's just yeah, you know, it's intense. You have that heavy feeling with it, don't you? There's an angst. There's an angst to it as well, isn't yeah. there? Yeah. And she was angst ridden whilst trying to pretend that she was fine. Yeah, fine. yeah. And that's yeah. so that internal feeling. So I work internally. So that was how internal feeling did did it for me. But I also used to have little external things that I that I kind of did over time. Um, she would always hold her sleeves. 
because mm. you know when you're young and you kind of pull your sleeves down because you you don't really you feel awkward and don't know what to do I would hold my sleeves um her clothes would be slightly too big for her and Perry used to do this as well Perry Fennick used to do this as well he always used to have his suit his suit his shirts yeah. slightly too big for him so it was like he was <laughs> inside the suit <laughs> it, so he was the suit was wearing him he wasn't wearing the suit so where you know somebody yeah. like Marty Kemp had a beautiful fitting suit that was like all yeah. suave and where Perry was inside his suit which gave him an air yeah, he was a bit more Rodney than Del Boy wasn't he yes. yeah it gave him a kind of little boy quality really that he yeah. wasn't quite he wasn't quite comfortable and so so there's little things like that that people would never pick up on but that you do as a as an actor to make you feel um like you know like your like your character um and certainly and that again again with her my the pitch of my voice all of those things and they they came mm. they came over time um and I loved that I loved that I've got books and books and books on her have you I loved that yeah I've got a lot and I loved the I didn't look at them for years but I I just loved constantly thinking about that um and that's really what I like to do I like to create characters really kind of inhabit them um, and then put them to bed and move on to the next one. I mean, the joy with the soap is you get so much time to invest in a character because you're with her every day. It's 52 weeks a year, pretty much, give or take a holiday here and there. And you don't get that, even if you're doing a film, you know, eventually you come to the end of the runway with with a film shooting schedule. But a soap is just, it just carries on. And I, and I think, to the you know, when when she finally finally found her voice and stood up for herself all of that all of that investment you'd made in her made her far more powerful because when she did the nation was lit. I remember it so well it was like yes go on you were so behind her yeah no it was brilliant it was brilliant to play and it was so well written and crafted and all of those and all of those great things that you have with something something like that that's been allowed to develop over a period of time. But it is something that they've done with Kathy really in, in Grantchester as mm. well. They've allowed me to invest um, and they've allowed me to talk about her as a character. And because sometimes the wives of the detectives in a series are tend to be uh, thankless tasks. You know, generally they're seen in the kitchen going, you know, oh, why aren't you home? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh, well done. I knew you'd do it. You're so great. Yeah. Supporting cast, right? And you're not supporting cast. Well, you know, so what, we, so what we did was, you know, we talked a lot about women in the 50s um, and, and how they, how, I mean, if I said to you, um, if you could, if you could, if you have an image in your head of a woman in the 50s, you'd probably think big skirt, baking. Yeah. And we've been sold this idea. And I think this happens in lots of different ways. We've been sold an idea of what women were like and what they did. Yeah, but they weren't. Actually, they were post-war women who'd worked, uh, raised families on their own. I mean, they were they were superheroes in so many ways. We had a conversation about the fact that... Um, that, that all of our grandmothers, there's a two female executives on um, Grantchester and, and Tessa and myself, and we all go out for dinner. We all have a dinner. We have girls' dinner. Um, and we sat there and we talked about the fact that all of our grandmothers, and we all come from different backgrounds and we're all different ages, uh, all of our grandmothers worked. All of our grandmothers had um, a job. And we said, why is it that we only ever see in period pieces, you know, a lot of women are domestic and the, uh, the, uh, that's the only way you see them. Um, and it was really important to us that we didn't, we, we looked at actually what the misrepresentation. And when, no, 
we're going to give Kathy a job. Mrs. C has a job. Um, you know, she, 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 you know, she runs the household, but, but yet she's very traditional. Um, and it was, it, that became a very important thing. And so we, that's what we've done. We've done that with Kathy and she has developed over the time, which is just brilliant. And again, like, this is what I say is what I love to, I love to find. And yeah. I'm very lucky because Robson isn't the kind of actor who uh, insists on having a wife who's 20 years younger than him. You know, he's quite happy with me. So it's really, it's really nice because he... You say that like you're some sort of booby prize. You're fabulous. What he wants at his side is an actor that can act him off the stage should they need to. And you can. Well, we both, you know, we both really compliment each other. I absolutely mm. adore him. I think he's... I think he's, he's a good guy, isn't he? Do you know yeah. what? He's one of the most underrated actors in mm. this country. Everything I've ever seen him in, I've always believed. And to be, to be... To make it look that easy, it's it's a real skill. To make mm. to make you like him that quickly, it's a real real skill. And he's mm. um and you know every literally everything I've seen him in, I've loved him in. Uh, yeah. And he's he's a great guy, and he's championed Michael's as Kathy in this too. It's all you know. It, it, again, it wouldn't have happened without his input and him saying yes. It's really important their dynamic and the fact that um that you know that that his home life, how important it is to him. You know, it's great. And it's lovely to be collaborative because in America, this happens quite a lot. You get a lot of actors who are allowed to be collaborative. Um, but in this country, it doesn't happen so much. And I I think that's probably because there's a worry that actors will go, well, I want to be wearing a tiara and some, you know, lovely frocks all the time or something, you know, superficial like that. But a lot of the time, it's just literally character work. You want it to be, you want it to, to have depth and flavor mm. and so that people like that and it'd be surprising. Um, yeah. So that, and that's what you want because people are surprising. Nobody is stereotypical. So don't write a stereotypical part. But I think we're seeing a real revolt in that, res in that respect and with, with actors letting their work do the talking for them. And you've got brilliant women like Reese Witherspoon and Nicole Kidman bringing female-led stories to the screen on their terms, both having been told by Hollywood that they might be past their sell-by date, you know? I know. It's I mean, hilarious. which is actually outrageous. And then they let their work do the talking for them because actually they're more than capable of being more than just actors. They can produce, they can exec, they can direct. Exactly. You know. Well, it's the same, It's the same. you know, if you remember all those years ago uh, when we were kind of starting out and you were starting out, you know, they said, oh, Spice Girls, um, you know, nobody wants mm. female pop bands. Yeah. It's only boy bands. They, they, won't buy the, they won't buy the records. Nobody will buy their records. Well, this is, I mean, this is a dilemma I faced because I was the editor of Smash Hits at the time. Mm. And I, the girls pounded into my office one afternoon to introduce themselves and were undeniable. And they wanted to be on the cover. And I said, uh, look, I will put, I, I'll do a piece covering you and introducing you and, and we will endorse you because we all think you're great. Not just me, the whole team. But I can't give you a cover until you get a number one because girls don't sell magazines. But if you give... If you've got a number one, then I, 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 can, I can take that upstairs and I can fight your case. And also, nothing else was working at the time. You know, take that split up. Britpop was everywhere. Pop had been sort of reduced. The, the colour had been sucked out of it slightly. Um, so I had to fight to get them on the cover. And, and they needed to sort of have a measurable kind of result, which was a number one. In order for for all you know for, for the in order for the publishers to get behind that decision as well, which is quite outrageous. But I'm glad that you know we helped to buck a trend. Yeah, and, the, and don't you often find that people say things like you know oh uh, you know, the, the, again the stuff that's been misrepresented. Um, girls don't get on. Girls are bitchy. Absolute shite. 
Yeah. It's just total rubbish, isn't it? Because, you know, I've been, out, I've been on, in two jobs where um, I, it was all female casts. Um, and I can't tell you the amount of people went, oh, how was that? And I went, it was absolutely <laughs> fabulous. And I have to tell you, we went out again. We enjoyed ourselves so much on the first run that we all went out again. And none of us needed to go out again. But we, did, we said, yeah, we'll all go out again. We want the same, you know, the same cast because we really enjoyed ourselves. And so I think quite a lot of the time, there's, there's so much that we've, that's, we've grown up with that's in our bones that people tell us about how women are you know uh, oh you know women are bitchy in the workplace what the hell is all that about that's not been my experience has it has it yours never been my no. experience never been my experience and and you think where does this come from where where does where mm-hmm. do these kind of outdated tropes come from that we mm-hmm. that we listen to and we go well that's and it's because you know you pitch people against one another you pitch young against old you pitch you know females against other females and then and then and then you can kind of say you you've got an out clause or something I don't know I don't know why they why we've had to put up with this but I I'm loving the fact that now we've got internet and Twitter and uh, Instagram and all of those things we can have our own voices and say I don't mm. recognise this. This isn't part of my life. I do, yeah. I, I, this hasn't been, been part of my working life. And if it has been yeah. part of my working life, it's normally from somebody who um, who's had to fight tooth and nail to get to be recognised themselves. So it's come from a place of, um, you know, act, literally having to fight to get a, one decent line. Although, you know, I mean you know i look at some of the other actresses that i've worked with and they're just they're just amazing and you and but it's interesting because even like going right back to kathy's predicament of like you know you saying well you you spoke with the producers and robson it's like let's give kathy a job because you want to defy the stereotypes of a woman of that time and i'm really interested to see how you're going to play her now that she is a woman of a certain time who's been cheated on because how we would deal with that as women now versus i mean like divorce was so so um, uncommon back then. Like, what do you do and the hurt that you carry and how do you find forgiveness? And now you'd be screaming and shouting and you'd have a voice, but would she have had a voice back then? No, and I think that was part and parcel of her going out and getting a job as well Mm. and wanting to get a job, wanting to be a bit more independent, not wanting to... And I I think that's great, but also... um, there were, you know, women's live didn't just happen in the 60s. You know, women, women had worked during the war um they'd they'd worked in factories they'd worked on the land they'd done all of those things they'd had to they'd had to keep everything going here and um and i don't think they were prepared to go back to 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 the to being chained to the kitchen sink i just don't think they were and so that's so that's something that that i think also gave the the kind of impetus towards um towards the women's liberation movement, which kind of started very early on in the 60s. Um, mm. But, you know, and we had to fight so much against lots of other things because, you know, media was was run by a very small group of people. And mm. so it was whatever they liked or whatever their bent was. I mean, I don't know about you, but growing up, I found that the women um, that were on television, they were either battle axes or dolly birds. I didn't, <laughs> yeah. I didn't have anything in between. Um, and I never, and I, I, and so, so when, so when I watched people, like when I watched things in the eighties, like Widows and Band of Gold and. Oh, Widows was so good. And Tenko. And Band of Gold, Kathy Tyson, Tenko, yes. I was like, oh, yeah. I was like, these, these women, they're all very different. 
they're all very different. There isn't, you know, it isn't just dolly birds and, and, and battle axes. It's not stereotypical. It's amazing that I was seeing these wonderful actresses do, do show that, that had huge audiences. Um, and they weren't necessarily about posh people either. Um, because, uh, you know, I, you know, I, I get bored with that as a diet of, of what, what, what I'm watching on television. Um, and so we had to, and we had to grow up with huge stereotypes. Mm. And now, and now our job is to kind of help to shatter them really and to, well, it is. to actually put them into a more realistic perspective. Yeah. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Perspective is an interesting one, actually, because that kind of takes me to my next question with you, because I, I know that you have spent many years um, learning more about autism and all, all of the foibles that sit around it, in t- not just the, the practicalities of how you manage a child like Elwood who has um, Asperger's and dyspraxia. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Asperger's, yeah. Also trying to emotionally be able to understand where he's at. And you, you've spoken at times so eloquently around this. And I thought it was really interesting. What do you think that you've learned that has enhanced you or inspired you or made you think differently, having had to kind of almost get down on your knees and look at life through his lens? Well, I think it's just that. The things that I've learned are that everybody looks at things differently and he's his take on the world is is like that and actually it's you only need to make reasonable adjustments in order to accommodate Mm. people who have differing abilities and a we don't we don't see enough of that um and and b we, we need to be more accommodating um, because I think there's a lot of situations where children are excluded from school, say, or um, a lot of young people in prison, a lot of them are undiagnosed um, with various, um, like I say, differing abilities. And if we just look at those children and say, right, this child is not going to sit on a mat and listen to a story because this child can't do that so what else can i do for this child and that's why things like fidget spinners came in because then Mm. your child will sit on a mat and listen to the story because they've got a fidget spinner to also deal with um and that is uh, but what what used to happen was was that teachers would go oh you you can't do that because everyone will want one well not Mm. everyone has a differing ability or that child would be sent to sit somewhere else like a punishment because they couldn't conform. But that's beyond their ability to be able to conform. Or understanding, for example, as a teacher, that a child with autism that rocks back on their chair, that's self-soothing. That is them calming themselves. That's not them disrupting. That's the antithesis of them being disruptive in their mind. And if you can see that and understand it, explain it to the rest of the class. That's 
then problem goes away, doesn't it? All the children don't even have an issue. I tell, I tell a really, I, I always say to people, this, this is a really nice story. My um, daughter had in her class uh, a boy who was who had um, who was diagnosed with uh, moderate to severe autism, um, and uh, she'd known him from the age of four, um, and he was also had a sight issue, so he was practically blind. So um, oh. and his sight sight was never going to be brilliant, but he could see enough to wander around, to, to be around school. He had an assistant, right? He's a, he was a lovely kid. Anyway, when Elwood was going through all of his diagnosis, obviously you have to go through hundreds and hundreds of meetings, which always makes me laugh because I think the worst thing you can do to a child with autism is make them meet loads of different people in strange atmospheres. It was just... Well, you could not exasperate them more, could you? Exactly. So anyway, we were doing all of those. And um, my daughter said to me... Um, you know, why is, why is Elwood going up for all of this, all of these, you know, tests? Because I didn't do this. Why is, why is he doing it? And I thought, oh my goodness, she's nine. Um, she's had this boy in her class since she was, they were four together. Um, you know, she'll understand because he has autism um, and obviously his sight issue, but she'll understand this process. And so I said, well, I said, um, they think that Elwood has the same thing as your friend, obviously, I'm not going to name him. As your friend, mm-hmm. and um, and she said, "Oh my God, Elwood's going blind." She didn't see the boy's autism at all. All she mm-hmm. saw was his physical um, difficulty with seeing. She mm-hmm. saw nothing of that. And she's mm-hmm. always said to me, "My whole year would be would have been not as um, not as it was if we hadn't have had him in our." class because we all knew that he looked at the world in a different way and she said in some ways it was really exciting because you just didn't know what he was going to do and she said and it was great and brilliant and they all knew how to soothe it she never even questioned that he had autism she was more concerned with the fact that he was he had a sight issue and so she so she only needed to be told certain things certain words were triggers for him so nobody said those words um mm-hmm. and there was a there was a time where he he said to her he said oh i'm feeling really stressed or whatever and she said oh plait my hair and he he sat in so whenever he used to get a little bit stressed he'd go oh, give us your plait and he'd replat <laughs> her hair and 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 he, so just an action of doing something like that mm-hmm. um you know, taking her hair out, doing that, got him over a little hump of feeling uh, really anxious. And and this was just a thing that they they had discovered between themselves. How wonderful yeah. is that? So yeah. you know, I, I I've learned I've learned so much about how you can help people, and also the fact that with with autism you have to score on three different levels. Um, but there are lots of children out there who have the traits. Um, and there's a lot of children out there who might have difficulty with one of those traits as well, or two of those traits. So they don't score overall, but they have two traits of autism, which means that if you put things in place for your child with autism, there's other children who will benefit from that too. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, you're quite right. There's a ripple effect there. There's a crossover between yeah. some children. If you've got a child in your class who doesn't like change as well, who isn't um, on the autism spectrum, but finds it really difficult to deal with changes in routines, then what you implement for this child, you implement for that child as well. Mm. And it works. Yeah. There's actually lots of traits that are very similar. 
you know, people who don't like, uh, who like things in order. Um, there's lots of people like that, but it doesn't mean they, they're, auti- they're autistic, but they have a trait. But do you think you would have had, I mean, actually, I think you would have had that, that kind of ability to look at things differently because look at how you've tried to reposition Kathy, for example, by telling the story authentically of women of, of that time, as opposed to what we've been served as a view of, of a woman at that time. Yeah, well, there's that. And there's, I remember when I did Call the Midwife, um, I had to play someone who had a lobotomy. How did you do that? There's nothing on the internet because obviously you didn't, you know, photograph people or film people who'd had lobotomies. Um, and so there was nothing on there. And so I thought to myself, I read a lot about it and it's about a disconnect. So obviously there's a part of your brain that they disconnect. So there's a disconnect. And I was out walking my dogs and there was a lot of um, fog. And I, I suddenly felt like I wasn't connected to the world because I was stuck in this little kind of foggy cave if you know what I mean I couldn't see and I thought oh that feels really um that 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 feels like I've got a disconnect and then I thought as I as I came back from that I thought to myself right okay it's not quite fog because you can move fog and I re- for me the feeling of the character was that she was under ice um because you can see oh. you can see out you can see people um you can see their faces but you can't get to them because it's solid so that was my first point. And I had a brilliant director called Thaddeus O'Sullivan who um, gave me a painting. So that was my, my, my second point. And then I sometimes use music. So um, there's, a, there's a Kate Bush, I always use her all the time because she... You can never go wrong with Kate Bush, can you? She invokes loads of things within her music. And mm. so I put all those three together and then I could play her with just a slight disconnect to to what was going on in the world. And that's how I, but again, it's a creative process. You have to think about it. You have to look it up. You have to try things. It's all sensory, right? A lot of what you're doing is sensory, which again, enables you to um, really connect with your son and your husband who um, has similar uh, a similar diagnosis. Um, is, am I right? Um, yeah, yeah. He's not my husband, but um, <laughs> the same as your father. Sorry, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so he has um he has a similar um yeah similar thing um and uh yeah and his dad too. So I mean there's right. a there's a whole there's a whole debate going on in the um, autism community at the moment about there's some research going into um, people with autism and um, uh, there's some who are really for it and some that are really against it. So. Uh, you know, I, I'm listening to I'm listening to the debate about yeah. it uh, because you know if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. Yeah, that's it. It's kind of like saying you know all deaf people are the same. You know, it's just you know it's just madness. And they will see and feel life differently. Yeah, they will. They will. And sometimes that's a really amazing lens mm. to look through. I think so. Yeah. You look at some of the greatest disruptors, uh, uh, not just of, of of the here and now, but of history. A lot of them would have presented as being certainly on the spectrum. Some of them have been diagnosed as being on the spectrum. But you need that point of difference. Otherwise, how do we create change and innovate and yeah. revolutionize? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and there is a there's a book uh, called Neurotribes, which is a guy, uh, written by a guy called Steve Silberman. And he thinks that the autism mind is the next evolutionary mindset. So uh-huh. he thinks because because sometimes autism minds can um can think on lots of different levels and certainly children i know children with adhd um they can often look at like three different screens 
and have an ability yeah. to go through three different screens. So they can work on something here, work on something here, work on something here. And that's, that's kind of evolution because why would you, you wouldn't have needed to do that in the 1940s, but now mm. um, you're, you're playing into people's, uh, you know, so, so, so it's, it's an interesting debate as to whether it's the next mindset. And that's why we're seeing more people and hearing about more people, or it's just the fact that we understand, we don't know about how the brain works. So we don't know, we don't really, really know everything um, that say like we need to know about heart. You know, if there's something that, that goes wrong in your heart, you, there's, a, there's ways to fix it. But with the brain, it's a very different situation. So, um, yeah, it's the last, it's the last medical um, mountain, I suppose, understanding the yeah. brain and how it works and, you know, how all of our neurons kind of bounce across each other. Uh, yeah. I think one of the, the most intelligent things I've heard in a while is, and we forget to do this, is you saying, I'm listening to the debate because everybody expects us to have either answers or an opinion. And you, you those A, you can have different answers at different times because what you hear during a debate can change and inform and shape those. And we have to allow that process. And and it's it's so often that we are expected to have a fixed position and actually listening to a debate is the greatest way to continue to learn and expand our own minds. Especially yeah. if you're listening, if the people who are having the debate are the people who um, have, have the condition. You yeah. know, you know uh, well, who am I to say what should be right or wrong? It's down to, down to that community as well to, to um, talk about uh, how, they, how they wish to be either investigated or not investigated or not pinned down or not stuck in a, uh, you know, this is, what, this is what this is and this is what that is, you know. Um, so there's, yeah, there's a big debate going on. It's interesting. My final question. What's the one long shot that you've taken that really has paid off? Um, well, I get, I guess it is the fact that I got rid of my prejudice about being in a soap and took it on. So instead of um, getting cross that everybody wanted to pigeonhole me, I took this fantastic genre and enjoyed every moment of it. And it was a long shot. It was a long shot because there's been many families who've gone into the show and are out within a year because it doesn't quite work. Um, yeah. And I guess as well, we were the first family of girls in that show. So it was... You were the Spice Girls of Albert Square. Well, kind of. <laughs> and it was, yeah, you were. And it was, it, you know, it was a long shot to do that because that wasn't the direction I was going in. You know, like I say, I'd just done a Mike Lee movie. I just finished at the National. Um, and it's always very funny because none of those places will employ me now because I've been in the soap. So Is that right? Do you find that there's a prejudice that, that kind of yeah. travels behind you? Yeah, there is. Yeah. With that. Yeah, there is. Yeah, there is. Especially if you're in a southern soap, especially if you're a Londoner in a London soap. Um, I don't know why. Um, I, you know, I mean, it doesn't happen to you absolutely everybody and but it is a fight to get out of of that but but yeah um i think a lot of actors who've who've walked that path into into a soap would say that they share that experience yeah yeah there's a there's a there's a snobbery around it there is there is but if you were in a nine o'clock drama like grantchester that 
attracts millions of viewers, the same sort of numbers as the soap, you'd be hailed as a critical success. Well, yeah, but it's because, you know, where, um, you know, it's because I'm a working class girl. So generally, you're not allowed to get out of your box, are you? But I think that's getting less and less. And I love the fact that I work with so many young people and they all say the same thing. Um, you know, I worked with a really brilliant girl called Sheila Coke and she's a BAFTA rising star. And uh, she said, I didn't see any parts that were on television for me. So I wrote them myself. Mm-hmm. And I thought, yes girl that's what you do um and and so i and i I love that i i love that whole you know you just write you you write it yourself my daughter just had a play that was um long listed at the national and she's only 16 um but she (gasps) but she wrote she's written a really gorgeous play and and i love that that we are getting people are going now well i'm not going to wait until you know we've talked earlier on about i'm not going to wait till that big finger of fate comes down i'm going to make that happen for myself i'm going to sit down i'm going to write it people like emerald for now you know People who, people from lots of different stratas of society are making their own stuff. Be the change you want to see. Yeah. But yeah, I think getting rid of my prejudice against soap, (laughs) I think was the best thing that happened because um, I had an amazing time. And quite often the things that you go, oh, I don't do that, actually turn out to be the best. Yeah. And and you did work that you tell me, was it work that you were truly proud of? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, and that's why I don't mind the reference to her. Um, I I don't mind it at all because it was was everything I wanted it to be. I was allowed to develop a character over a period of time and I did it day in, day out for six years. And that was a privilege, Mm. you know. And and also people, you know, I I literally had someone last week who said to me that her friend, somebody who was on Grantchester with me, that a friend of hers had actually got out of the relationship that she was with, was abusive because she'd watched that storyline and thought, I have Mm. to get out of this. And that's amazing. You know, 20 years later, you're hearing from someone who you're working with, whose friend did that. That's incredible. And that's that's a wonderful thing for the whole show. That's not, not, not to do with me as a person, but, you know, I was the conduit that it went through. Um, And so I needed to play her correctly and 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 I also the thing about her was is that I never wanted her to change I didn't want her suddenly to become like you know you know <laughs> Bet, <laughs> Bet Lynch or Pat Butcher or something like that suddenly, oh, yeah. suddenly have a I massive... could Trevor stand back bitch yeah, yeah you know, it's, no she was she had to stay her she had to stay and actually that was the success of her not being defined by the abuse right was to stay her stay her and so many people yeah. used to write to me and say you know I'm really unconfident and you know and you and but yet and I really relate to her and that she's that she's really, you know, unconfident. And it's so lovely to see someone who's allowed to be like that. Yeah. And carry on, you know. Um, the worst thing they could have done was do do her a makeover. I mean, every time they we did a like a joke makeover, it was always, you know, cat throwing on some so some leopard print onto her and it never yeah. really worked um <laughs> but there was great comedy in those moments there there's was. also a lot of reality because in a family that was as diverse in terms of people's temperaments yeah um that surely would have gone yeah especially the, you know a, a clan of sisters that surely would have happened yeah i mean we had such a laugh filming a lot of it and some difficult times as well but but such a laugh filming so much of it and i didn't i haven't seen hardly any of it so i'm kind of waiting until it comes around i think is there's one that's showing that shows vintage standards there's a there's a there's a, a channel that's showing it and it's coming up to the time where we're coming in because i i just didn't watch it at the time because i was too busy playing it and if i watched it yeah. then i would 
then I would be critiquing myself. So I just never watched it. Um, okay. uh, I watched some of the bits, obviously, when you go on television, they show you bits of what you've done. Um, but there was also time things that I couldn't watch because it was so painful to do. And yeah. I just didn't really want to, I yeah. just didn't really want to go there, you know. Um, and certainly my kids couldn't watch it because it was, you know, it was quite, it was quite hard. Harrowing for them. Yeah, yeah. harrowing because I was their mum. You know, Harry yeah. if I wasn't their mum, but Harry if I was their mum. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah, it was a, it was a, that was my never be, never be snobbish about anything. Get rid of your working class chip on your shoulder. Um, and get over yourself and get on with it. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's brilliant. I love that you can own it with great pride now. That's great. Is <laughs> what it is. And I know that you're um, back in production on season seven now, as they call it in the States, because this, this is this is a show that is a co-production between here and America. Yeah, it is, yeah. Um, I know you're back in your pointy bras and your wigs. I am. On Grantchester. I am, I am. That's why I don't need to dye my hair, because I've got a wig on. <laughs> um, roots, uh, so, um, because I've got a wig on for the next, you know, few months. I mean, I've been filming, we, we did, really did them back to back. So we, we, did, uh, we did six and then had a little break and then went straight into seven. Um, wow. So I've been filming solid for a year now. Well, it will be a year when I've when I've finished, just over a year. So yes, lovely and gorgeous and wonderful. And I'm um, looking forward to it coming out on the 3rd of September, I think it is. It comes out here and then 3rd of October in America. And um, thank you so much thank for sharing so much of your, your past and your wisdom. It's been so lovely to hear about all of the investment that you've made into two brilliant characters that are so different. And I can see now why they stand out um, because you've poured so much time and love and care and attention into them. What I like to do, innit? <laughs> innit? And uh, you can find Grantchester in it on uh, ITV back September 3rd and uh, also on Catch Up uh, because let's face it, most of us live in a world of catch up now, don't we? We do, we do. We love a bit of catch up. I think the first, yeah, the first one's not until the 3rd of September here. Um, and then we've got eight. So it's either every Friday. You can either do it and then watch Gogglebox on catch up um, after, <laughs> after. So you do Grantchester and then do Gogglebox at 10. So it's going to be fine. So yeah, there's and then, and, then, and then it's bedtime. That's, that's it. Your weekend starts here. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Casey, thank you so much. Um, continued success. Uh, good luck with the pointy brows, the wigs. And I don't need to say with the series because it's already a slam dunk. Yeah, it's all good. <laughs> thank you. It's so lovely to talk to you and see you. Well, that's it from us for this week. As always, the show is produced by me, Kate Thornton, with Libby Knowles and Richard Hatherall for Yahoo UK. And our music comes courtesy of Andy Bell. Don't forget, we've got live shows rolling into the West End of London this month with Craig Revel Hallward. Uh, next month, October, with the cast of Grange Hill, who were reuniting live on stage. And in November, the cast of Dunbreeding, Tamsin Outhwaite, Julie Graham, Denise Welsh, Tracy Ann Oberman and Alison Newman. Tickets are available wherever you get your tickets. That's it. We're back next week with more great chat. Until then, take care out there.